0: This episode, we're speaking with Carol Allen, who's the Insect Index Columnist for Washington Gardener Magazine. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. And lest you think that's all Carol does is write the Insect Index Column for our magazine, uh, this is a lady who wears many, many hats, and we're going to peel off some of those layers and those hats (laughs) throughout this interview, because I think... I have, I think, six different current titles for you and pursuits, um, and I'm sure there's many more that I don't even know about.
1: Oh, that's good. I have to keep secrets from somebody. (laughs) So
0: um, the first hat I was going to talk about with you today is as an orchidist, is that the correct term? Orchid lover? Yeah. Yeah. Orchid orchid expert um, because many listeners in our audience will be familiar with you not just from the column in the magazine but also from years of seeing you at Benki and having their orchids repotted at Benki nurseries which unfortunately had to close last year but they'll still have have that
1: um, association with you well you know I once Benki's closed which broke my heart Because I've been with them for so many, so many years, off and on, off and on. Then the last stretch was like nine years
0: um, that That I was doing
1: the orchid clinics and the repotting. Because it's not just repotting. Mm -hmm. It is a diagnostic clinic because my degree, I have a master's degree, just a measly master's, not a PhD. (laughs) Um, My research was done with orchids and in particular, transfer of virus disease, which is scary for any orchid grower, very scary. So those meetings that I had, those clinics that I had at Banky's, were really about diagnostics. What's wrong with the plant? How can I get someone to grow it better? What can we do? What are the rules of the road when it comes to growing different types of orchids, different species, different hybrids? And what I did, Kathy, and I was pushed into this, not exactly kicking and screaming, by friends of mine who said, you can't stop now, just because <laughs> is closed. you can't yes. stop. We need you, Carol. So by June of last year, we started holding um, clinics and repotting clinics that were open to the public by invitation. I have a mailing list. And they're held at different people's homes. And it was quite a scary venture. Yeah, I didn't know, oh, my gosh, how is this going to work? And it was splendid. It is everything that we did at Banky's. And then, of course, the hostess usually decides, well, I'm having company. So there's food. There's congeniality. People hang. They talk. Um, so I've got this whole little group of people of, of about, like, 200 um, right now is what my mailing list is. And, um, we're going to pick it up now that COVID-19, I think we have a better handle on it. And mm-hmm. I am going to start holding clinics again, probably the first part of July. I don't know if I can get my act together by June, but they will be masked, they will be distanced, and there'll be a limited number of people in the area. They'll be held out on a friend's back patio, back garden, which is a splendid place to, uh, to hold the uh, the clinics, so I will be starting those up again. And you can follow me on my Facebook page, Orchid Lady Carol. And you can always drop me a line and say, "Hey, put me on your mailing list. I want to. Mm-hmm. I want to come see you." So that we haven't stopped. Um, I couldn't stop. There were too many people. Even now, <laughs> I'm getting yes. I'm I'm getting messages saying, "Carol, I have orchids that need you. Where are you?" And I'm like, "Okay, we're going <laughs> to do this." Well, that sounds like a wonderful
0: gathering, and, you know, pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID uh, we can get together and see you. And what do you recommend for frequency of repotting an orchid? Say you bought one or got one of those um, moth orchids, say somebody gave you one from a florist or a supermarket and it's starting to get a little sad or leggy, um, what's your recommendation for that?
1: Well, I Kathy, I don't know about you, but you know, mm-hmm. you go into like Trader Joe's or Whole Foods and mm-hmm. have you noticed that they put the blooming plants right by the door?
0: Okay. Oh, yes. Right by the
1: door, you know? Mm-hmm. And there you are, you're thinking, "Oh, I've got to do grocery shopping, and you know what am I going to cook for dinner?" And then there's all this beauty and you go, "Ah!" Oh. One of those is going to jump in my cart. And I think that's <laughs> way a lot of people get orchids because it's that spontaneous, oh my God, I need this. Particularly in times of stress. You know, are we a little stressed now? Yeah, just a mm-hmm. little. Um, so when you get a blooming moth orchid, the important thing is, is to give it a little bit of sun or very bright indirect light. Don't put it in the credenza in, on, in the dark dining room except for very short periods of time, because these guys never take a break. They're always photosynthesizing. They're always gathering those resources for continued bloom and repeat bloom. So a little bit of direct morning sun through a window, not outside, guys, through a window, or very, very bright indirect light. I call it squinty light. You walk <laughs> into the room and you go, squint. You feel those crow's feet. Ugh, didn't want to do that. And then the important thing is to let it dry out between waterings. They are um, a drought-adapted plant. I know, jungle, wet, humid. You think, what do you mean drought? Yeah, they have the same metabolism as a cactus. So that's your first two number one, number two rules. Sunlight and bright indirect is just fine, but always inside, not outside. Um, And then let them go dry between waterings. Don't do the silly shot glass or the ice cubes or any of that. A lot of times when you get them, They're in a soft pot with a hole in the bottom that sits in a cash pot. So when Mm -hmm. you get your your orchid, pull that soft pot out so you establish, hey, oh, wait a minute, I can take this little plastic pot to the sink. I can run water through it. It will run out, let it drain, then put it back in the cash pot. The best way to kill an orchid is to let it sit in water, And people don't understand that when you get it in the ceramic pot, it's really, it's a two-part deal. There is that soft pot inside. Separate those out. In fact, I usually recommend put a little something in the bottom so that that soft pot is held up a little bit so it's easy to grab out. And then Mm. the repotting thing. So sad as it may seem, this is a throwaway plant. They didn't ask me, don't blame me, but it is a throwaway (laughs) plant. It's meant to be enjoyed for a few weeks and then you're going to get tired of it. I know you guys out there are not going to get tired of it, but these are manufacturers and they think marketing and they're going to want you to throw it out. Don't do that because what you want to do is as soon as it's out of bloom the first time, you want to repot it. Now, what do you repot it in? Oh, here you need some guidance. Because if you're growing on a windowsill in the mid Atlantic states, you're going to have several different types of media combinations to choose from. My preference is lightly packed and not even packed, but fluffed sphagnum moss. We use a a premium quality sphagnum. You water it thoroughly and deeply. Remember to move that root, take that little soft pot out of the cash bow take it to the sink, run the water through, and then you don't water it again until it gets absolutely crunchy on top. And that's what I like about sphagnum moss. It's really, really easy to tell when it's time to water. If you have it in a bark-based medium or maybe a chip and sphagnum, you know, ground sphagnum like peat moss blend, it's harder to tell. Now, the Mm. soft they come in are clear and you can kind of see it dry down. Remember that this is a drought adapted plant. It has the same metabolism as a cactus. So if you let it go dry two days longer than you thought you should have, maybe you were on vacation, got away for the weekend or got busy, don't worry about it. You're gonna have a better chance of doing harm to your orchid to water it prematurely. So let it go crunchy on top in the moss. In the bark, you kind of have to tell by the dryness as it dries down in that clear pot. Um, The thing you don't want to do is water on a time basis. Plants don't have day timers. They don't dry (laughs) out by the day of the week. They're going to dry out by the amount of sun they get. What are they doing now? Are they growing? Are they sitting there looking cute? Are they blooming? You know, they're going to have different water uses based on the weather, your environment, and what the plant is doing. So repot as soon as it's out of bloom the first time. And then every year thereafter, and those are the big three: sunlight, proper watering, annual repot after the first time.
0: Wow, that is a great mini lesson on orchids, right there, Carol. And I have uh, (laughs) to—I was going to say—admit to. Uh, being an orchid killer once or twice by overwatering, <sighs> o- over loving, and letting it sit in water. Because yeah, I thought, oh, it needs it's looking kind of sad. It needs extra water. No,
1: <laughs> but <I> no,
0: have- <laughs> no. I have learned that lesson a few times over, and my current orchids are doing well and actually reblooming. So I'm super yay. happy about that. Yay! Absolutely, so,
1: yay! Yeah.
0: What is what do you remember your first orchid? Do you remember back to there,
1: uh yeah, oh my gosh, so I went at orchids in a in a two part way. I started working with native terrestrial orchids when I was a teenager. Um, my parents uh, had just moved down to Alexandria, and my mom gave me the side yard. I had big towering oak trees um filtered sunlight and oh boy did i have a good time of course back in those days this is the dark ages we're talking about guys uh (laughs) a little after the caveman but not by much um all of our native wild plants were they were collected all right and you could get them for dirt cheap and there wasn't much information on trying to get some of these Plants in general, you know, the trilliums and the spring beauties and all of those. Oh, the, the Virginia bluebells. There wasn't any information out there, Kathy. So what people would do was they would buy from these distributors, people that would go up on the mountains and just collect. And you'd kind of... um Plant them and pray and observe and, and hope that you could get the right spot and the right culture. Of course, orchids don't take kindly to that, particularly <laughs> native terrestrial orchids. So I can't say that my first forays into orchid growing in the, the native orchids was all that thrillingly ex- successful. Can't talk. Um, I did. I was marginally successful. But then, of course, life intervened and I went off to college. So my second introduction to orchids was I was at a local nursery and they would, this is before the days of big uh, growers, you know, importing from Holland, importing from Taiwan. This is way before the Phalaenopsis was so readily available. But this particularly, particular local nursery would get extra plants from members of the National Capital Orchid Society and if they wanted to sell them, and there were several people who sold that way, and when they're in bloom, they would display them. Well, needless to say, I saw a Fragmapedium. This is a South American lens, uh, South American lady slipper. It was pink. It was gorgeous. It was bold. Mm-hmm. I bought it. Don't you always just like buy and then figure out, now what am I going to do with it? That's exactly mm-hmm. what I did. So Fragmapediums need full sun. They like to be moist all the time, counter to what I just told you about the Phalaenopsis, the moth orchid. They grow stream side. And so I bought it because it was beautiful, of course. And fortunately, the guy's name was on the tag and I called him up and he was wonderful. He invited me over to his greenhouse. Um, I listened with rapt attention. I got involved in the National Capital Orchid Society. And I was with the Orchid Society for over 20 years.
0: Wow. It's, it's, that's such a blessing to have a mentor like that and to have somebody take, them, take you under their wing and share their orchid wisdom.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you have to understand, when I came back to orchids, I was already pretty well established as a professional horticulturist. So it wasn't like he was speaking to a total newbie. I knew how to mm-hmm. grow plants. I've been growing plants since I was a kiddo, Um, but it was just wonderful to have um, him as a mentor. He is gone now, Um, gone to the great orchidarium in the sky, but I will never forget. I will never forget him. He was wonderful.
0: Wow, what a treasure. Yeah. You mentioned kiddo. Let's talk about little Carol. (laughs) (laughs) How you got into plants, were you the type of little girl who liked to make mud pies and get dirty, or did somebody take you under their wing even back then and, and show you the plant
1: world? Well, this is this is really kind of interesting because it was a little bit of both. So I come from a long line of women gardeners. My mother's mother, of course, had a garden to feed her children. Um, that was the Depression era, and if you wanted food, you, you had to grow it. And she kept chickens and she would trade eggs to the the dairy up the street to get milk and she churned her butter. And of course, you know, they, they ate off of the garden. So my mom grew up with that kind of influence, but my mother took it into ornamental gardening. And she tells the story of when I was not even walking, that if she wanted to go out in the garden, she'd lay a blanket out under in the shade where she was weeding. And she plopped me down. And there I would be in the garden. So when I began toddling, of course, I had her guidance of no, don't touch that flower. We smell it, we don't touch it. I can remember kind of bringing her a caterpillar. Mommy, mommy, look at this pretty caterpillar. She was probably going, die caterpillar die but she didn't (laughs) want to traumatize me so she said oh honey let's take it over here and let it go so I started I must have been no more than six or seven and my mother was never able to throw out the tops of carrots because we could get carrots with tops on it in those days um avocados my mother loved avocados there was never a pit that was thrown out So by the time I was nine or 10, my windowsills were lined with jars of avocados in various stages of sprouting. The first mango I ever ate, what did Carol do? She planted it. Mm. Um, Yeah, I can remember the first time we got a case of grapefruit from Florida and we opened up one of the grapefruit and it was very ripe, tree ripened. So the seeds had started to sprout. What did I do? I planted them. So. I had mom's influence, Nana's influence, but I have taken it so far beyond what both of of my mentors, my familial mentors ever did.
0: Hmm. And then you pursued a degree in biology, botany, or what was your first degree?
1: Um, My first degree was in biology. I was actually going Mm -hmm. to go into um, veterinary medicine, um, but life intervened, you know, life does. And mm-hmm. I can remember being at a, at a, at a career kind of crossroads um, when I was in my probably early 20s. And my friends looking me square in the eye and saying, if you don't go into horticulture, we're never speaking to you again. Because at that point, I was an avid um, gardener. I was an avid botanist I love to go out in the woods and identify plants because remember I started with native plants so I would ramble the woods how I didn't just stay coated in poison ivy rash I'll never know um, so I pursued it both on the amateur level and very soon on the professional level
0: hmm. and looking at your resume you worked uh, for a time at the U.S. Botanic Garden could you talk oh, a little yeah. about that
1: Oh boy, you talk about a pig and strawberries. So (laughs) I was a supervisory horticulturist at the United States Botanic Garden Conservatory. And I I got to help all of the gardeners put in their displays. Um, I would plan the seasonal displays as well, buy in some color sometimes. We didn't grow everything in those days. But I would say that the biggest thing and really kind of kicked off another love was I was acting IPM, Integrated Pest Management Director. And this was an immersion course. I'd already, I'd already played around with the pest, the predator, the host interactions in my own way, but now I was in it for serious. And in those days, and and still when it's open, when we don't have COVID-19 to deal with, The USBG is open 365 days out of the year. So now that may not mean much to you guys, but it doesn't give us time to control pests through an application of a pesticide. Um, So I was held to a strict IPM program with, I could not use anything with a re-entry time of greater than four hours. So, all pesticides have a re-entry time, in other words, a time between the spray and when people can come back in safely. The minimum is four hours. So I would get up and my gardeners would get up and we would be at the BG by about 4.30 and we would spray from 4.35 o'clock until opening at 10 o'clock. Well, actually we sprayed for the first hour and then it was Mm -hmm. the re-entry time. So we had we, we manipulated it so that we had four hours. We had to finish by six. So between 4.30 and six, we would spray. Then everybody was out of the houses so that the reentry time would pass by before we opened at 10 o'clock. And what I ended up doing by your tax dollars, thank you very much, was I learned how to use beneficials. And My boss at that time was just like, run with it, Carol. So I got to know people like Stanton Gill, Karen Rain, Ethel Dutke, all of the folks at UMD to help me put together a control program using either just oils or soaps, which have a re-entry time of four hours or the release of of, um, beneficials. And I had a blast. I found that beneficial insects in a greenhouse work marvelously well when you take away all of the pesticides, which Mm -hmm. I couldn't use because they had a re-entry time of greater than four hours. So I really kept my eye teeth on that, went back to school, took a lot of courses in integrated pest management, took a lot of courses in plant pathology because of course, because diseases, disease pathogens are just as cool as pests and how you can outwit them, outmanipulate them. Can you use a beneficial fungus to control a nasty fungus? Ah, yes, you Mm. can. So there's this whole interaction between pest and pathogen and predator and parasite and, and working with the plant's natural immune system So that a lot of times you can outwit those things that are really bugging you in the garden. (laughs) Well, Carol, you're
0: one of the few people I know who would describe plant pathogens as cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To me, Kathy, it's a challenge. You know, I get this pathogen and I'm like, oh, cool. How can I outwit this one? Um, Because, again, I had that period of time at the USBG where I couldn't use chemicals. And, and, I, and yet I had to deliver a beautiful botanic garden. And I think one of, the, one of the moments of pride that I had, so most of my gardeners after 10 o'clock went back down to the production facility to work in their various houses and grow the plants that make up the botanic garden collection. I was the person who stayed behind, which means that I interacted with the public So you can imagine my joy, pride, a little bit of embarrassment. When a gentleman came in and asked the receptionist, could he speak to the integrated pest management director? Well, you know, they called me up. And here was this this dignitary from China. He ran a botanic garden, one of the big botanic gardens in China. And he said, he had pretty good English so we could communicate. And he said, I don't see any pests, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, oh baby, I can show you pests. So <laughs> I took him on a tour and I talked about our IPM program. And it was just such a wonderful connection to make with someone halfway across the world who did the same thing as me and thought I did a good job. I wasn't showing him the real pockets of, of disease and nastiness that I had hidden away, but they were there. Mm-hmm.
0: So speaking of nastiness and disease pockets and good bugs and bad bugs, um, recently on the insect index column, we tried to keep it more on the positive. I think, I think in the last issue we wrote about um, spring, that smell of spring. Could you describe that a little bit?
1: Well, I don't have my notes in front of me, so you're going to embarrass me, but so Oh Kathy, you should have told me. You, you should have warned me, <laughs> because I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, now I got to pull up the article. What did I do? Um, so, oh.
0: it was the springtails, yeah,
1: it, the springtails. But but, so it was. It oh gosh, not an enzyme. What was it? It was p- probably oh, geism. Yeah, but but I'm trying to figure out what yeah. was it? Was it a protein? Was it a what was it? But anyway, it was an odor that is naturally occurring in i in in soil, the soil microbes. And it's something that humans are particularly sensitive to. We can smell it a mile away. It's that smell that you get with fresh earth. And scientists were wondering, well, wait, wait a minute, why is it so abundant in soil? Why would this chemical prop, you know, this, this enzyme or whatever it was, um, be so prevalent? And it turns out with a little bit of exploration that springtails are attracted to the bacteria that produce this odor, and they eat them. It's food. Well, wait a minute, you're going to say well, wait a minute, that's not so good for the bacteria that produce this odor because aren't they going to get eaten? Well, when they get eaten, this is ultimate sacrifice for population dynamics, their spores get carried by the springtails because the springtails are much more mobile through the soil profile than the bacteria are. So they would, the springtails are very sensitive to this, this odor that the bacteria produce, The springtails would go and find them and you've got a lot of competition in the soil profile you've got nematodes you've got all kinds of other critters that also want to eat the bacteria but because they co-evolved all around this odor that the bacteria produces the springtails had the competitive edge they would know where the bacteria was their food source the bacteria had the springtails to carry their spores throughout the soil profile, thereby increasing their population. And that gave them, even though the individual was sacrificed as food, that gave the population the competitive edge. Now, why do people smell it? Beats me. Mm -hmm. So we are very sensitive to that odor. um, And I don't think that the researchers really understood what the connection would be. Because we don't eat that bacteria in the soil. <laughs> At least mm-hmm. I don't. <laughs> no.
0: And for, for listeners, that, that scent we're describing is that scent of freshly turned earth in the springtime yeah. that kind of gets released into the air. And it's, you can't really place what that is. You just know you love it. You just yeah. like ah, fresh, just freshness, I guess would be the description
1: of it. Yeah, but earthy too. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and, and of course, for you and me, because we garden. It's, it, it's aligned with the pleasure of pulling out that weed and the pleasure of seeing the dahlia bloom or the peonies bloom or the Cleomi seeds germinate, or the peas germinate in the early spring, knowing yum, 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 I'm going to have peas, or I'm going to have zucchini, or I'm going to have whatever it is. We associate that with, with generally with pleasure, even over the fact, the inconvenience of, yes, the tiger mosquitoes are out, and I have to spray myself with a repellent. I don't know. I don't know about you, Kathy, but that smell overrides all of the inconvenience. So
0: there must be something something. calling to us. Yeah. Must be something that, you know, mother nature is working her magic on us and our, and some, some pheromones, something there that's pulling us outside. So um, good bugs versus bad bugs. So you described a little bit of um, integrated pest management. And in a previous episode of the podcast, we talked to um, Heather Zendash in depth on IPM principles um, but what I wanted to ask you is um favorite insects, most hated insects.
1: Well I already mentioned the most hated. Mm-hmm. Mosquitoes. Uh yes. Those little blood suckers. I'm sorry. I, you know, <laughs> it's it's that, that I it's all about me, Kathy. Come on, it's all about me. Um mm-hmm. but in the garden. You know, there's so many pests, if you vegetable garden, that are just the dickens to control. You've got cucumber beetles. You've got squash vine borers, um, two the the nasty ones that I always get questioned about. And, you know, what do you do about them? Oh, flea beetles that come in hordes yes. and just run through your garden. And by the time that you notice the fact that everything is half defoliated, you're going, wha wha whoop, they've already moved mm-hmm. on. Um, There's a a lot of challenges in vegetable gardening. And when you think about it, you've got all of that luscious stuff out there for the insects to eat on. And you have to understand that. So we're going to talk about plant defense. I hope you want to know about plant defense. So Mm -hmm. people like to eat plants that don't produce a lot of chemical defenses. Yeah, yeah, I know. Mint, okay, that odor that we love well, that's a secondary metabolite. That's a defense compound. And the poor mint plant evolved to discourage herbivores. Well, they didn't discourage us, did they? And then the smell of brushing through a tomato plant. Isn't that odor just wonderful? Makes your mouth start <laughs> to water. That's a defensive compound. That was, that, that tomato plant co-evolved with that scent to try to discourage the herbivores uh, they missed on us. So <laughs> I was going to say,
0: I actually hate that smell, but go on. <laughs> oh, you're one of the few. Most I'm the one of the time I mentioned
1: to it, I say, yeah. They,
0: yeah. So I do love, I do love tomatoes, but just tomato foliage. Is just, <laughs> mm,
1: yeah, no, just I something
0: love sour, Something sour about it. I just don't. Yeah. Like
1: but know now that that is a defensive compound, and it was mm-hmm. to keep the co-evolved herbivores, you know, the, the cows of, of the last millennia or, or whatever was eating the tomato foliage. And it comes down to the insects, too. So most plants out there in the plant world have these secondary compounds. But humans like the ones that don't have secondary defensive compounds. We like all those mild, yummy vegetables with mm-hmm. not really strong tastes. Yeah. And that means in our gardens, we gather all of these yummy things together. They don't have a plethora of bad t- I mean, we don't eat eucalyptus. All right. Mm. Eucalyptus has a strong smell. We don't eat it. All right. Um, so that eucalyptus smell is that secondary defensive compound that keeps insects from eating it. So our vegetable gardens are a little hotbed of every herbivore insect come eat all of the plants that I've put here, and mm. that makes insect control a little bit harder because we have all these luscious plants in one spot. So it's smorgasbord. Now, mm. what can you what can you do about that? Well, I always urge people to definitely select your seed source, uh, select your variety for. Planted for pest and disease resistance, the breeders have worked hard to help stack the deck in your favor. Um, sometimes we use things like barriers, uh, the spun-bonded polyester that we put over the kale crops, the kale, um, cabbage, uh, cauliflower, oh. broccoli, all of that <laughs> group you can put a barrier over it to keep the cabbage moths off so you don't even have to spray with anything because you've encased them in this this netting or this fabric. Um, you can't do that with beans and cucumber beetles because you've got to open it up for pollination. You've got to get the beneficials in there, your pollinators in there, but you can cover them up during their youth so that they get to be a strong plant before the, before the, uh, the cucumber beetles come and try to ravage them. Um, So you can use barriers, you can use trap plants. I mentioned flea beetles. Flea beetles are very attracted to radish plants. So if you had one side of your garden where you had radishes, the flea beetles would go savage the radishes and conceivably you could either use like an oil spray or or a soap spray there or just gather them all up in a plastic bag real quick before they run away and put them in the trash. And that way you could decrease your population of flea beetles. Don't you wish you could do that? They move pretty fast. <laughs> but no. Yeah. Way- but like thrips, sometimes thrips will get on squash blossoms and drive us crazy. Well, they like members of the chrysanthemum family better. So plant a row of marigolds. They'll be on the marigolds where maybe you can... You know, take the flowers off, or or use one of your organic sprays on the marigold flowers. Not when the bees are there, um, mm-hmm. to trap the thrips and to keep them off the squash blossoms. So you, this is what I mean by I really like the challenge of outwitting the pest. So those are just a couple of examples that you can use.
0: Hmm, excellent advice. Thank you. And that was that was some of the bad bugs that we encounter in our garden um japanese beetles are are something that i get a lot of questions about from readers and listeners um particularly those who want to grow roses so that's more on the ornamental side
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and japanese beetles can be a real pain in the you know what um it's 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 good to know it's refreshing to know it's hopeful to know that Japanese beetle populations ebb and flow. They come, they rise, and then they drop. And we are in a drop. So even though you think that your hibiscus and your roses are getting savaged by them, this is actually less than it could be. So Mm -hmm. count your blessings. So I I like to attack Japanese beetles in a a two-pronged attack. And this is the thing about IPM. You're not using the sledgehammer to kill the insect. You're employing the philosophy of many small hammers, so many small controls to outwit or foil the pest or pathogen, rather than just using the nastiest chemical in your arsenal and just beating the heck out of it. So Japanese beetles, many small hammers. The first thing to do is to use a bacteria called milky spore disease, and you... Apply that to your soil. You usually have to do it a couple of times. And if you're in a suburban area, it's really nice if you can get all of your neighbors to do it because they can fly up to about a half a mile or to a mile. So the Japanese beetle that you attract to that trap, which you will not use, do not use (laughs) Japanese beetle traps, people. You will be pulling in every Japanese beetle for a mile radius. Uh-uh, don't do that. That's suicidal. <laughs> <always> All
0: right. <laughs> I always say so, if, if, if you have an arch enemy, that's the, the greatest gift you could give them is a Japanese beetle trap.
1: <laughs> oh, you never heard it from my mouth, but I think it's a great idea. Anyway, so you milky spore disease, and that's a bacteria that, attack, that attacks the grub. The Japanese beetle spends most of its life cycle from about mm, July through about mm, May, right? May, June, in the ground. So they're gonna be very, very vulnerable to like predatory nematodes, which are naturally occurring and you thank God that they do. Um, and this bacteria that likes to give them, well, a terminal case of mummification. Think, think, think pleasant thoughts. All right, mm-hmm. and then, so use your milky spore and hopefully that'll decrease the population. I really don't recommend using a hard pesticide on your turf or your garden. Um, It has a lot of, of beneficial insects that get killed by using a hard pesticide. Sometimes the turf companies will say, oh, you've got Japanese beetle grubs, we need to use blah, blah, blah. And you go, well, maybe let me think about the alternatives. So the milky spore disease is the soft alternative It doesn't kill anything except the Japanese beetle grubs and their associates, um, unlike a hard chemical. So take care of the grub that way. Once the Japanese beetle is out, it's going to gravitate towards your roses, your hibiscus, linden trees. It has a couple of favorites. And what I like to get people to do, because I'm just twisted, um, (laughs) (laughs) get up with the dawn. Yeah, I know. You're laughing at me. You get up with the dawn. The birds are just singing. The air is cool. You take your cup of coffee and a bowl of about maybe six to eight inches in diameter and about as equally deep, and you half fill it with water. You put a squirt of dishwashing liquid in it, and you go out, and remember, they're sleeping now. You can catch them. So, It's important to know that beetles have this behavior that, again, stacks the deck to you. Beetles, when they're disturbed, drop and then fly. So if you carry your bowl of soapy soapy water, you put it underneath the cluster of flowers, and you just tap on the flowers, chances are you're going to get the majority of the beetles that will fall into the sudsy water. Now, people, you don't even have to touch them at this point. The soap mm-hmm. in the water keeps them from resurfacing and flying out. And then you dump the whole thing in the toilet and you flush it away. Now, if you get really nasty and conniving like I am, I'll squash the little you-know-whats with my with my bare hands. Yeah. At first, I squealed like a girl when I did it. And then I put on gloves and my hate for Japanese beetles grew to the point where if my gloves were back at the house and I was out with whatever plant it was. I just squashed them between my thumb and my forefinger, but I understand most people can be able to do that because they've got mm. brown junk in them and it's icky. Mm. So there you go. Yeah. Use your sudsy water <laughs> first thing in the morning. They drop before they fly and use your milky spore disease on your turf and in your garden beds so that you get the bacteria working for you.
0: Mm and a, that satisfying multi-pronged approach. Again, it's the yeah. philosophy of many small hammers. Mm-hmm. Now for insects that you love. Who do you, who do you want to bring to your garden and who do you just delight and say, I cannot wait till that time of year that I see so
1: and so. Oh, I love wheel bugs. Hmm. They are they are big. You know, they're oh, about an inch and a half long. They've got this, this, this projection on their back, like some kind of wheel with, with, uh, with um, spikes on it. They have a piercing mouth part. They move fairly slow. Um, they are winged. They can fly. Um, when, you see, when you see them in the garden, don't handle them because they will bite you defensively and you will not be a happy camper. They don't go after you. Right, right. Don't be afraid of them. But neither are you going to have your 10 year old say, oh, mom, I found a wheel bug. I want to go catch it. You go, oh, let's go take a look at it first. You know, don't catch it. Watch it. Um, they are wonderful predators. They've even adapted to I think they've learned how to eat um, brown marmorated stink bugs. Wow. Yeah. Uh, hey. That's pretty I know yeah. the pray, praying mantises have figured out about brown, brown uh, marmorated stink bugs. I think the wheel bugs have too. So they're more towards, you're going to see them more towards the end of summer, early fall, when the bugs that eat plants abound because that's their, that's their food. So their life cycle is going to follow that end of summer where we have an abundance of insects. So that's, I, I would say that's one of my favorite bugs.
0: Nice. Well, a little bit of a left turn here from bugs to trees. So mm-hmm. not too long ago, you got uh, your certification as an arborist. And talk about why you decided to do that.
1: Okay. So it it's, it's, wasn't a little while ago, Kathy. We go back a long time. <laughs> it's been almost a decade. Just saying. Wow. Just saying. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, I, the problem here is, is that I love too many different kinds of plants. And I love woody plants, I love shrubs, I love trees. Um, I guess in my own property, maybe this started back, oh gosh, when I first moved to my property, well, we were having, we were caught in a drought. Remember what a drought is? That was a few years ago. We haven't had one in a while. And I mean a prolonged drought. The water table had dropped and I have a property that's nestled into the southern end of Seneca Creek State Park. So I've got tulip poplars, I've got hickories, I've got oaks. I started losing my oak trees, my big mature oak trees. So I called in the arborist um, that was assigned to Seneca Seneca Creek State Park. And we talked about environmental changes that set up for trees to fail. And it was this this dropped water table. Well, things have changed since then, and I've learned as I went along more and more about environmental conditions. I learned more and more about the the importance of tree cover. Um, our cities, our suburbs, suffer from uh, too much heat in the summer times. Um, in some of our areas in the city, this this excessive heat that we get, people die. Um, And we can counter that by increasing the amount of tree cover in our cities and in our suburban areas. And I guess it also goes hand in glove with, when I look at turf, I see a wasted space. Um, That is an area of plant material. It's a monoculture. It's an alien plant. It's not well adapted to our, our region that we live in. And it's not giving back. It's not supporting the ecosystem. It's not controlling this excessive heat that we get when we lose tree cover. So I guess I'm one of those rebels that not only would encourage people to plant more native plants that are appropriate. You don't have to go whole hog. I like the 15%, 85% rule. 15% for you, non-invasive please, but try to do 85% native plants. Increase your tree cover it first of all it cools your house It's going to cut your air-conditioning bill it it decreases this heat island effect Which is the official term for cities and suburban areas that get too hot because they don't have that tree cover Trees are natural air conditioners Um, It's the start of creating more of a dynamic ecosystem in your particular property, if you can get your neighbors to join you, if you can, if you can get your, your common area to go back to a more tree dominant, woody plant dominant, which is normal for the mid-Atlantic states um, type of environment, then you're gonna find all of these wonderful bugs. And you know, we're talking worldwide about the de- decrease of insects and the impact that the decrease of insects has. I love bird watching. I'm a lazy bird watcher. I like them to come to me. So my <laughs> way of getting birds to watch is to create habitat. So in your own property, you want to increase the number of woody plants, shrubs, mid-sized trees, shade trees. You want to increase diversity, your biodiversity, so that you've got ground covers, you've got, you've got herbaceous perennials, you've got shrubs of many different kinds. And that 85% 15% 15 rule, I think really is a nice compromise between, oh, you've got to go all native or I don't care. Um, And the whole point is to decrease the heat island effect, increase tree canopy cover, um, increase biodiversity and have more fun stuff happening out in your garden. You've got insects to watch, you've got birds to watch. Then, I'm sorry, I like snakes, okay. you're going to have frogs, you're going to have toads, you're going to have snakes. So you want to create more of a a biodiverse and well-rounded ecosystem in your own space. Hmm. Well, as
0: listeners can hear, Carol is full of lessons and wonderful advice. And you've been an instructor recently at Montgomery College, at the University of Maryland, Uh giving talks at local uh, public gardens like brookside mm-hmm. um, but where could somebody get a hold of you maybe for a personal consultation do you take um individual clients
1: i i do i do and i've learned with the covid19 that i can do a lot virtually i've done a mm-hmm. couple of designs virtually um, that's not my main squeeze is designing, but I do love it. And I do take on a, f- a few clients. I would I would say that probably the best way to get a hold of me is through my Facebook, Orchid Lady Carol. And don't be put off by that says orchids because I don't discriminate. I love all plants. <laughs> so you can reach me through there. Um, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. I was also going to say that listeners could
0: contact us through the magazine or through our website and we could always forward on an email to you as well yes
1: absolutely absolutely in fact orchidladycarol at gmail.com is a more Mm -hmm. direct route if you don't have facebook
0: and what is growing in your garden this week
1: Oh, wow. You would ask. (laughs) So, orchids, of course. Come on, Kathy. Jeez. (laughs) So, one of the things that I absolutely adore about my habitat that I partially, you know, after the oak trees died out, and they did. I lost a lot of oak trees. I replanted um, more native plants. Um, I love hummingbirds. So, I have the perfect habitat for hummingbirds to just like settle on in, raise their babies, and entertain me at the feeder. Now, I also plant a lot of plants to support them. Um, One of the best things, one of the best expenditures of money, best investments in my property was deer fencing because we got them not as much now. Uh, There's a, a little population decline where I am, but not by much, mainly because we have more coyotes um, we don't want to talk about that. and mm. But I put, up, I put up deer fencing. And when I did, I found that the native touch-me-not jewelweed started to really abound. I mean, I would have just great patches of it. Well, the hummingbirds think that that's the best thing since sliced bread. So I put out my feeders, usually when the azaleas are in bloom. So end of April, first part of May. And I did have my feeders out this year. And in spite of the freeze, yes, I had hummers. And... Then I have plants that I know will support them and entice them. So I'm long on kaffia, and I'm long on salvias. And that's tough for me because I've got a shady, a shady uh, yard. So hmm. I, I have these one or two little patches of sun, and I get in salvias so that I have things to, for them to nosh on when they don't want to nosh on my feeder. I also have um, our native trumpet vine. Okay, lanicera Sempervirens. sorry, I speak Latin. Um, that's our native honey, uh, our native trumpet creeper with the orange blossoms. They love that. Um, I have bignonia, which is also an orange trumpet flower um, that they love. And then by that time, my salvias are in bloom. They like the azaleas. Um, my touch me not's not in bloom. That's a late summer thing. Um, I usually start out with a fuchsia, which and I hang that right by my feeder, like, like they don't know where the feeders are. An important thing to know about hummingbirds, if you want them, find a place for your hummingbird feeder, if you're new to this, where you can see it. And it can be on the deck rail. There are, they are bold, they are brazen, and they don't give a fig about you. They are, their feeding habits are called They're trap line feeders, which means like the trappers of old that would put out traps to catch animals. We don't talk about that. That's not nice, but they would have a trap here and then a space and a trap there and a space and a trap there that came into a big circle until they came back to their home base. So hummingbirds do the same thing. They learn where the flowers are and they go from location to location, to location, to location. So you can put your hummingbird feeder where you want to see it. They don't care about your deck. They don't care about your dog. They don't really even care about your cat. God knows they don't care about me. Um, (laughs) And then sit back and enjoy. And again, I stack the deck a little bit. If you're just starting out with hummingbird feeders, try to get as many flowers that will attract the hummingbirds as possible, like that, that um, orange uh, trumpet vine, that Lonicera sempervirens, is a good one to go with. Uh, don't poo-poo your azaleas. They do like those. The fuchsia, again, that's not native, but because hummingbirds migrate, they actually have a broad palate. Um, I also like to put out some red, screaming red impatience, but they don't need red necessarily to be, to be attractive. And then I lay in my salvias, my kufia, and a whole bunch of other plants to support them through the summer until my hmm. touch me not um, comes into bloom. And that usually hmm. rounds out my, my hummingbird smorgasbord.
0: Hmm. You say kufia, I say kufia.
1: Well, hmm. yeah, okay. Caffia <laughs> kufia.
0: you know, the, just, the, the, the bat, Latin, yeah.
1: You know, whatever. Yes, the bat plant. You know, But the thing of it is, is that even we pronounce it slightly differently. Did we know what we were talking about? Exactly. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I really encourage people, if you're just starting out in horticulture, go ahead, you know, tighten your belt, take on Latin binomials. It is the language of the industry. And Hopefully, you'll never have to deal with a person who will make fun of your pronunciation. Hopefully, mm-hmm. you will find enough people who will gently say, it's kufia, not kufia, mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I really, I applaud people who take that extra step to learn more. And mm-hmm. that Latin binomial is part of learning more.
0: Yeah, and I've heard the saying never to make fun of somebody who mispronounces a word because that means they learned it from reading it, not yes. from hearing
1: it. yes and now that we have a plethora of podcasts and webinars you're going to hear people pronounce things and oh my gosh if you tune into some of the gardening channels from across the pond you're going to (laughs) hear a totally different pronunciation don't let anybody ever put you down for a mispronunciation don't let that happen
0: that is great advice and and while you're learning you're going to make mistakes and and maybe you'll stumble across the correct pronunciation at some point and then but really in in the grand scheme of things it's not that serious
1: oh i do have one tip missouri Mm -hmm. botanic garden i love Mm -hmm. the missouri botanic garden when i'm when i'm directing a person to look up a plant oh because guys if you haven't figured it out now when you go to the nurseries those tags they're written by marketing people. They've got all the buzzwords that's going to sucker you into buying that, but they're not necessarily correct on sizes and time of bloom and all of that. I really direct people to Missouri Botanic Garden website. And Kathy, did you know that they've got a pronunciation guide?
0: Oh, yes. I've used it a few times on my own. So, yes, you can and also. So yep, yep. And that's MBOT, it, I think is how you can MoBot. get there just by, yep, MoBot, by MoBot. Googling. And you can also do botanical Latin pronunciation um, and type in the word yeah. or copy and paste it into that Google Word. And and it will actually have, if you turn the speaker on, on your laptop or your uh, phone, it'll actually say it for you. La nisera sempervirens. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably as, as nerdy, plant nerdy as we're going to get today. <laughs> yes, yes, Absolutely
1: well thank you so
0: much for joining us for this episode carol
1: oh you're very welcome thanks for inviting me we're
0: definitely going to have you back to talk more about orchids plant pests and pathogens in the near future
1: i look forward to it
0: thank you carol It's a beautiful late spring early summer day and i'm out of my garden to let you know what's blooming now we're in the pink literally and figuratively i have several different dianthus growing from ground cover versions to container dianthus to a tall perennial variety that is looking incredibly beautiful i think i might cut a few stalks to bring inside in a vase for me today um, figuratively, the pinks are mostly coming from the hydrangea arborescence, the smooth hydrangeas, uh, which are blooming up a storm right now. I have several of the Invincibel series, Invincibel Spirit being a pale pink, Invincibel Ruby being a dark pink, um, and those are looking quite beautiful in the mixed border right now. I still have some astilbe, which are in different shades of pink blooming, and I also have a tall, I would say mid-range Asiatic lily called purple dream. Um, It has purple speckling in the center, but the flower is basically, I think, a deep magenta more than a purple. Um, So let me know what's blooming in your garden. You can... Follow me on Instagram at WDC Gardener to see photos of my recent blooms in the garden. And you can comment there and share pictures on the Facebook page of Washington Gardener Magazine. Plant Profile Milkweed Common milkweed. Asclepias syriaca is an important plant for pollinators in our mid-Atlantic region. The weed in its name can scare some people off, but it is important for local gardeners to add it to our landscapes. Recent studies show that widespread use of pesticides and herbicides have impacted the Asclepias and monarch populations. It is a perennial native to most of the eastern United States. The flower is also a popular nectar source for both Honeybees and native bees, as well as hummingbird moth and many other kinds of butterflies. Asclepias syriaca bloom from June and continue through August. In the fall, their seed pods ripen and dry out, splitting to reveal each seed attached to a long silky fluff that floats away in the breeze. Milkweeds need sun and adequate moisture to get established. Once in place, it is quite hardy and drought tolerant. Its rhizome goes straight down, forming a taproot, stabilizing the single stalk plant above ground and providing the plant with resources hidden deep when needed. It can be hard to start from seed and is difficult to transplant due to that long taproot, but give it a few tries and you'll eventually have success. It tends to run a bit and pops up here and there, growing to about 5 feet tall. So plant it in a mixed bed with other sun-living native perennials such as Echinacea, Rudbeckia, solidago, asters, and coreopsis. This is especially important because pollinators need groups and clumps of flowers to thrive. If some of the leaves on your plant start to look ragged and chewed on, great! The plant is doing its job providing food for the next monarch generation. The toxic milky latex that Asclepius exudes when a stem is broken make them inedible for deer and rabbits, while monarch butterflies can eat the leaves at their caterpillar stage, and that makes the insects in turn unpalatable to birds and other predators. Common milkweed, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy-Gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. Does gardening have value? I wrote this essay BC before COVID, but I think it has even more relevance. These days, I was recently rereading Depletion and Abundance by Sharon Astick. There is much food for thought in this small book, though one idea stuck with me the most that the home arts, including gardening, have no value in our current economy. Not only are the efforts of gardeners undervalued, but they are considered a drain on actual, quote unquote, productive hours that could be spent earning funds. To do what with that money? To pay others to mow and blow, then endlessly spray to combat weeds and pests for your just-for-show lawn? When we pay for gym memberships to try to get our exercise, we pay someone else to grow our food and deliver it from far away, or we pass out still more money for another person to prepare our food so it is easy and fast to consume. All to get more hours to do more quote-unquote productive work. Meanwhile, we've become increasingly detached from nature and our climate-controlled living and workspaces. We forget these basic skills and then are slaves to the economic system because we need to pay others to do them for us. Let's step back for a minute and think about this. Gardening can be simply a hobby or a pastime, but it can be more. It can be a way to control your part of the economy. You can step out of the rat race and decide consciously how much you want to grow yourself for food, for pleasure, and for the local wildlife. You can demonstrate to others the true value of gardening by sharing that abundance with them and spreading the knowledge as well. Viva La Gardening Revolution! You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDCGardener, on Instagram at WDCGardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.